0: Welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Kevin here. It is now AbSite Crunch season. So uh, for the next two weeks, we're going to release two episodes a day of our Abcite review, and we're going to come up with a, a few new episodes at the end. Um, so try and keep up uh, throughout the next two weeks to cover all the material. Make sure you uh, get our podcast companion, which can be found on Amazon. Uh, it's all of our notes throughout the, the many years of residency amongst all of us that follow along with the uh, podcast. So you can get that visual aid. Also, one of our friends on Twitter, Dr. Rebecca Williams-Karneski, uh, uh, drew some great illustrations that she has been tweeting and we've been retweeting. So uh, they follow along with some of the podcasts, especially the thyroid and parathyroid ones and along with many others. So check out Twitter and find us and find uh, Dr. Karnesky on there. And then also we have some more uh, board review on our YouTube page. So make sure you find Behind the Knife on the YouTube page where we do some uh, most common images seen and some uh, helpful mnemonics. All right, guys, enjoy the episode. And welcome back to another Behind the Knife absite Review. Today we have Jason Bingham, Wudo, and myself, Kevin Canary, taking us through
1: parathyroid. Yep, so parathyroid, as always, starting with some high-yield anatomy. So, woo, superior and inferior uh, parathyroids. Um, what can you tell me first off about the superior parathyroids?
2: Yeah, so the superior parathyroids are posterior and lateral to the recurrent laryngeal nerve, and they originate from the fourth pharyngeal pouch. So think superior is a bigger number, four. Uh, It's important because when you look at the inferior parathyroids, they are anterior and medial to the recurrent laryngeal nerve, and they originate from the third pharyngeal pouch. The inferior glands are more variable in terms of their position, and uh, the thymus also migrates with the third pharyngeal pouch.
1: Yeah, and the way I remember that is, you know, the inferior ones are traveling all the way from the third pharyngeal pouch all the way down to the inferior of the gland. So, they have to travel further. So, therefore, they're the most – they end up in the craziest location. So, they're the most variable. Um, Kevin, we mentioned this in one of the other reviews, but what supplies blood to both both the inferior and superior parathyroids? That'll be the
0: inferior thyroid artery supplies blood to all four glands in 80% of cases. And this comes
1: off the thyrocervical trunk, which is on the subclavian artery. Perfect. So parathyroids, unfortunately, there's a whole lot of physiology involved in, in, in the what the parathyroids do. So Wu, what can you tell me a little bit about what the parathyroids release and, and what the function is?
2: Right. So you want to think about two types of cells. The first are the chief cells and the second are the parafollicular C cells. The chief cells of the parathyroid release parathyroid hormone, PTH, in response to low levels of calcium, whereas the paraphilicular C cells release calcitonin in response to high levels of calcium. Uh, bear in mind that though the parafollicular C cells are actually located in the thyroid, whereas the chief cells are located in the parathyroids.
1: Perfect. Uh, so Kevin, tell us a little bit about, so we're talking a little bit about calcium metabolism and regulation of calcium. Um, and another important, um, factor when it comes to our calcium levels is, is vitamin D. Um, you'll see this every once in a while. we will ask you where, how we absorb our vitamin D where it's synthesized, where it goes on different modifications in the body. Can you walk us kind of through that vitamin D process?
0: Uh, so vitamin D is ingested or synthesized in it's a uh, precursor form. Uh, it is then hydroxylated at the 25 position in the liver and then at the one position in the kidney.
1: Yep. And that's where it becomes its more active, most active form. So, you know, it, it, you, you ingest it and then, uh, or it's synthesized and then it goes to the liver. It's hydroxylated at 25 position, then it goes to the kidney with the 1-alpha hydroxylase, and it's hydroxylated at the one position. And that point, it's at its most active. Uh, Now, let's talk about the different actions of these different hormones and, and how they work in the body. So Wu, first off, the parathyroid hormone. What are the actions of the parathyroid hormone?
2: Yeah, so there are two sites that the parathyroid hormone is acting on. The first is the bone. The PTH stimulates osteoclasts for resorption of calcium and phosphate. The second site is the kidneys. The PTH there stimulates resorption of calcium, inhibits resorption of phosphate and bicarb, and stimulates the conversion of the 25-OH uh, vitamin D to the more active form of the 125-OH vitamin D. And
0: with questions with PTH, uh, you always have to remember that it's the phosphate trashing hormone. So um, people with hyperparathyroidism will have very low phosphates until they go into kidney failure, at which point uh their phosphate will be high. But for the most part, people with high PTH will have really low phosphate.
1: Okay. And uh Kevin, so you talked a little about vitamin D, how it's how it's synthesized. Uh once it becomes that active one, it's hydroxylated at the one position at the kidney and it becomes that active 125 um, hydroxy, you know, vitamin D, uh, what happens there?
0: So in the gut, it actually stimulates absorption of calcium and phosphate. Um, and where you get the phosphate trashing, as I just referred to that, that's at the kidney. So at the kidney, the uh, PTH encourages wasting of phosphate. But in the gut, it actually, um, you get absorption of calcium and phosphate.
1: Yep. So, you know, parathyroid hormone stimulates the resorption of calcium and phosphate from the bone, resorption to calcium, of phosphate of the kidneys, Activates vitamin D. Vitamin D goes and uh, increases the absorption of both calcium and phosphate in the gut. What
2: about uh, calcitonin, uh, Woo? So calcitonin I like to think of as something that tones down calcium. In the bone, calcitonin inhibits osteoclast bone resorption, and in the kidney, the calcitonin also inhibits resorption of calcium and phosphate.
1: Yep. So a lot of feedback loops going on here. Calcium, or calcitonin kind of does you know, the opposite effect of parathyroid hormone. Important to note is that the receptor is on the osteoclast for both parathyroid hormone and calcitonin. So parathyroid hormone stimulates osteoclast to resorb bone, whereas calcitonin uh, inhibits the osteoclast. And so that the osteoblast can do their, their work, but interesting. So it doesn't
0: stimulate the osteoblast. It does not
1: stimulate the osteoblast it inhibits the osteoclast. And that is a question I've seen. So the receptor for both hormones is on the osteoclast. Uh, All right, let's talk a little bit um, about some, uh, some pathophysiology scenarios. So uh, Kevin, um, hypercalcemia, common clinical presentation. Uh, Tell me a little bit uh, about uh, how it most commonly presents.
0: Uh, a lot of times it's just found on labs, uh, as, as a high calcium level. Um, and, um, if it's an extremely high calcium level, you want to be concerned about malignancy.
1: Yep. So it's most you know, in the outpatient setting, uh, a lot of times they'll break these patients up. They're hypercalcemic, either they come in and it's incidentally found on labs or they're severely hypercalcemic and it's found, uh, as in the inpatient setting. So what's the most common uh, cause of hypercalcemia in the outpatient setting?
0: Uh, primary hyperparathyroidism.
1: Exactly. Primary hyperparathyroidism. How about in the, you know, inpatient, you know, very high level setting? Uh,
0: that, that's where you're going to see the malignancies uh, causing hypercalcemia.
1: So interesting with the malignancies uh, cause hypercalcemia. Is it, is it, what's the most common cause of that? Is it, you know, a parathyroid cancer that's releasing parathyroid hormone or is it other cancers that are releasing something else?
0: Right. No, the most common is uh, squamous cell cancer of the lung that leads to hypercalcemia by stimulating uh, parathyroid hormone. Uh, You can also see it in breast cancer. Um, And then lytic bone lesions is a less common uh, malignant cause of hypercalcemia.
1: Yeah, so it's actually most common by a parathyroid homo- hormone-related protein, um, and so and this not necessarily parathyroid hormone itself, but a, a kind of a um, yeah, like a mimic. So a parathyroid hormone-related protein released from things like squamous cell lung cancer um, or breast cancer. Um, the actual lysis from met- from metastasis to the bone is, is a less common cause of uh, hypercalcemia. Um. woo uh, so a lot of times these patients with a malignancy will present in hypercalcemic
2: crisis um, how do you treat that so first you're going to treat with just fluids and initially it's uh, just going to be normal saline you're going to run it around 300 cc's an hour and once the patient becomes euvolemic then you can add on lasix
1: yep so they'll give you a couple different fluid choices normal saline lactated Ringers. what are you going to choose and why uh,
2: so you're going to avoid the LR because LR contains calcium?
1: Correct. Yeah. So don't, they're in a crisis. It doesn't make sense to give them a fluid with, with uh, calcium in it. So initially, 300 mLs an hour of a normal saline, and then uh, you can add some Lasix in there. Uh, Kevin, uh, you, we mentioned that the most common cause of hypercalcemia in the outpatient setting is primary hyperparathyroidism. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. What's the most common cause, um, and uh, how do you diagnose this?
0: The vast majority of primary parathyroidism is from a single adenoma. Um, occasionally, 2 uh, to 5% of the time, they can have a double adenoma, but 90% of cases are going to be from an adenoma. Uh, some of the other causes are hyperplasia, where all four uh, parathyroids will actually be um, increased in size and inc- excreting extra hormone. Um, and then very rarely, um, you can have parathyroid cancer um, as a, as a cause of this. And then obviously Min one and, uh, two a are also causes of hyperparathyroidism.
1: Yep. So the vast majority is going to be, uh, secondary to an adenoma. Second, most common, um, a distant second would be, uh, uh hyperplasia. Um, uh, tell me a little bit about the laboratory workup of how you diagnose a primary hyperparathyroidism.
0: So uh, generally, you have a patient that comes in that has elevated calcium. You're going to then do a urine uh, collection on them and get a 24-hour collection of the urine um, where you'll see increased calcium and decreased FOS. Uh, except for, we already mentioned it. Except in renal failure. We'll have an increased phosphorus as well. Right. But. And, and prolonged uh, hyperparathyroidism can lead to renal failure. Um, it, it's damaging to the kidneys, but so you'll see, uh, you'll do a urine study, see increased twenty-four hour calcium, and then you'll obviously see an elevated serum PTH. And before then,
1: you, I, I do want to reiterate one point that we should have mentioned earlier. We talked about all the different um, effects on you know calcium and phosphorus between the kidneys and the bone and the um and the GI tract from vitamin D and calcium and parathyroid hormone. What's the overall effect with an elevated uh, parathyroid hormone level what's the overall effect of calcium and of uh, phosphate
0: increases the calcium and decreases the phosphate
1: correct so even though you're absorbing some from some phosphate from the bone you're absorbing some from the gi tract your kidney is excreting it at a, at a higher rate so the overall blood effect of uh, elevated parathyroid hormone is increased calcium and decreased phosphate. except as you already mentioned in cases of renal failure Okay, so we have the 24-hour urine collection. Where else do we go for the laboratory studies?
0: Uh, you're going to check their PTH, which seems pretty obvious, and that will be elevated. And then one of the most specific indicators of hyperparathyroidism, and this comes up for whatever reason, is the chloride to phosphorus ratio. So you're dumping uh, phosphorus, and you're going to have a hyperchloremic state in patients that are um, – have hyperparathyroidism so you're going to get a very high chloride to phosphate ratio and the number to remember is 33 so chloride to phosphate ratio of 33 is very specific for primary hyperparathyroidism
1: okay yep exactly and that's um that, that comes up. That's a easily there. That's a that's a that's a testable you know question. Is you think about it, your kidneys excreting excreting uh, phosphorus, secreting a negatively charged ion, it has to reabsorb something um, to balance that out, which is chloride. So you have an elevated chloride to phosph ratio of thirty three or greater. Uh, another very um, another useful laboratory test is you'll see an increase in uh, the urinary urinary calcium as it spills over. Um, and is excreted as well as uh, increased urinary uh, cyclical or cyclic AMP, secondary messenger for the resorption of calcium and the excretion of FOS. So you, you have your diagnosis. We mentioned that, you know, the most common cause of a primary hyperparathyroidism is
2: a adenoma. How do you localize um, the, the adenoma? Absolutely. So um, in the vast majority of cases, we're looking for that single adenoma. Uh, You can break apart localization studies to non-invasive and invasive modalities. For the non-invasive ones, you could use ultrasound, cestamib scans, uh, single-photon emission CTs, or SPECT, and MRI. Uh, Of these, the best is likely a cestamib with a SPECT plus or minus the ultrasound. Uh, And as far as invasive studies go, you can use angiography with venous sampling for PTH gradients, and this is generally reserved for reoperative cases.
1: Yeah, I, I don't think you'd see that too much on the test, but definitely knowing that the, the, the system may be in this, you know, the specs uh, with ultrasound for localization is highly effective in the vast majority of cases. You know, if you've already done your resection and you still can't find it, you, you know, then the more invasive, um, lesser common tests like angiography and, and selective sampling is an option, but I doubt that you would see that on the test.
0: Yeah, many times is all you need is an ultrasound uh, or possibly cestamibi. Correct. Yep.
1: Um, treatment. Kevin.
0: So, uh, this is a very easily treated condition with a parathyroidectomy. Um, and nowadays they're pretty much recommending almost most people that have hyperparathyroidism should be considered for a parathyroidectomy. Um, so indications in patients, a lot of these, especially nowadays with increased lab monitoring of patients, uh, there, you're going to have a lot of patients that are asymptomatic. They just get an elevated calcium on one of their blood tests. So which of these patients, uh, per the absite should have their parathyroid removed. So if their elevation of their serum calcium is one milligram per deciliter or more over a normal value, just that alone is an indication. If they have a decreased creatinine clearance, as we said, prolonged uh, hypercalcemia can cause kidney damage. So if they have a decreased creatinine clearance, less than 60, they should also have a parathyroidectomy. If they have osteoporosis, if their T score is less than 2.5, uh, F- taking out their parathyroid gland uh, will actually improve their osteoporosis. So they should have uh, that treated. If they, if this is a patient that has poor access to care and follow up, um, you know, you, c- you should consider just taking out the parathyroid. It's just generally the cause that surgeons use to operate. Uh, and then if they're less than 50, if they're young, if they're going to be having hyperparathyroidism for a long time, there's uh, systemic effects, um, which they should have a parathyroidectomy to prevent. Um, and then, like I said, some argue all patients with parathy- hyperparathyroidism, but generally you'll have one of these indications for the absite.
1: Yep. So again, all symptomatic patients, no question, they should have, they should undergo surgery. Um, uh, and then those indications you listed. This is a common pimp question on rounds: is you know what are the indications for parathyroidectomy in the asymptomatic patient? So again uh quickly elevation of serum calcium one over the normal value based on your laboratory uh decreased creatinine clearance uh uh, t score less than 2.5 if they have poor access to follow up you can go ahead and take them out age less than 50 and uh, as kevin mentioned there's more and more push for you know taking these out it's a safe surgery um we're starting to understand the the uh, negative impact of having a prolonged uh, elevated PTH, even if it's asymptomatic and you don't necessarily meet these criteria, there's more and more pushes to take these out, um, you, more more and more liberal use of, of parathyroidectomy. But for the boards, for the outside, I would stick with those indications. Uh, now, intraoperatively, Wu, how do you know, you, you know, you do your localization studies, you think you know, uh, uh, you think you got your target for your adenoma, how do you confirm that intraoperatively once you've done the, um, parathyroidectomy
2: so the key is to measure a rapid pth assay and you're going to compare that against the baseline before the removal of the parathyroid gland and you want to see a 50% drop in the parathyroid hormone level
1: right and a 50% drop interoperatively and and at one t- at what time period kevin
0: it was like 10 minutes
1: yeah after you remove it yeah it has a very short half-life so yeah, it's,
0: it's pretty it's pretty amazing and then if it doesn't have that drop that's when you are going to have to go searching uh other sites to identify the parathyroid
1: Uh, okay how about for so that's if you have a single adenoma how about if you go into it and you have multi-gland disease uh woo how do you how do you
2: treat these patients so these patients require a subtotal parathyroidectomy that means three and a half glands or a total parathyroidectomy with reimplantation into the sternocleidomastoid or the brachioradialis muscle okay uh and bonus points
1: so you're doing your three and a half gland resection do you resect the the three glands first or do you resect your half gland first?
2: You want to start with the half gland. Right. Or so
1: you take out three perfectly normal or you take out three good glands and you go take out your half one. You realize you devascularize it and you're left with nothing. So, yeah, do your half gland resection first.
0: And I, I could see this coming up as a question where they give you a Sestamib scan and they say the patient has hypercalcemia um, and the Sestamib lights up all four glands and they ask you, what surgery would you do for this patient?
1: Um, and that and that is when you choose uh, what we just discussed. That's a great question. I think you should probably start writing questions for the boards, Kevin. Sign me up. Okay. So, uh, so that's primary hyperthyroidism. Uh, Kevin, what's secondary hyperparathyroidism?
0: So secondary hyperparathyroidism is in patients that are in renal failure. So as we discussed earlier, you can't have the uh, hydroxyl Hydroxylation to the 125 vitamin D so you have low calcium and so your parathyroid hormone increases uh which is and it increases to such a point um, that it causes problems um so it, it does increase calcium but then you do have uh, other side effects and this is generally just treated by giving the patient calcium and vitamin D supplements um and that will help decrease their need for excess PTH. And then a lot of times they'll be on a renal diet and FOSS binders.
1: Yeah. As we talked about, these are all feedback loops. So, you know, if you have a, if you have renal failure, you're not able to, you know, activate your vitamin D, you're going to have persistently elevated levels of PTH. That's going to cause bone resorption. That's going to cause further problems. And, and, and so you have to treat that with uh, calcium and vitamin D supplements. So, Wu, we talked about primary. We talked about secondary. What's tertiary?
2: So now take that patient who had secondary hyperparathyroidism, they go on to get a renal transplant, and they continue to have high production of PTH despite the renal transplant. That is tertiary hyperparathyroidism.
1: Yeah. So you have your parathyroid hormones, which are constantly stimulated for years and years and years. All of a sudden you get a renal transplant,
2: but they're still amped up. So they're still producing high levels of PTH. Um, how do you treat those? So for these patients, you can do a subtotal parathyroidectomy or a subtotal with autotransplantation.
1: transplantation. Correct
2: uh okay uh,
1: so that t- covers our primary secondary tertiary um again a lot of you know a lot of feedback loops once you spend a little time trying to understand the pat- the pathophysiology they all start make make sense and they're easy to remember um so finally let's talk about uh parathyroid tumor or parathyroid cancer um we mentioned before it's a very rare cause of hyperparathyroidism uh, but how do they typically present kevin so these patients will have calciums of
0: you know, about 15, extremely high, whereas all these other calciums will be around 11, um, and they may have a palpable mass.
1: Yeah. So this is something I, in the stem of the question, they'll probably give you somebody with an extremely high calcium, maybe comes in in a hypercalcemic crisis, they have a palpable neck mass biopsy, it is parathyroid cancer. Um, how do you treat these? Uh, the
0: This is an in block resection with ipsilateral thyroid and central neck dissection.
1: Yep. So you take out that, you know, you take out the tumor, you take out the ipsilateral thyroid, and you do a central neck dissection. Uh, How about recurrences, metastasis, or let's say they have recurrence, or let's say they have widely metastatic disease? How are they treated?
0: uh unfortunately chemo rads are not effective for parathyroid cancer for the most part uh so you're going to do palliative surgery
1: and then give them calcium lowering drugs such as bisphosphonates that's great so this is one of those cancers where even with metastasis you might get you might get a resection um just uh to uh, as a as a palliative measure uh okay so that's a good quick overview of parathyroids the the most highly testable uh, questions. We'll move on now to our quick hit session.
0: We should have warned our listeners to not be driving during that uh, session for fear of
1: falling asleep. Oh yeah. Sorry. A lot of physiology in this one, but we tried to keep it, tried to keep it quick, tried to keep it pertinent. So quick hits. Um, all right. So woo, you have a high normal range serum. So high normal calcium, um,
2: elevated PTH and evidence of bone loss. So, this patient is normal calcemic and has hyperparathyroidism. So, normal calcemic hyperparathyroidism. It's an early form of primary hyperparathyroidism, and uh, surgery is indicated if the patient is symptomatic.
1: Right, and I, I think this speaks to us, you know, going more and more towards you know doing resection. That some of these might be a little bit subclinical; they may the calcium may just be on the upper end and normal there, uh, but they have an abnormally elevated PTH, um, and the, there is long-term consequences to that. So, one thing we never discussed is what symptomatic means. That's a great question. So, uh, Kevin, what are the symptoms of hypercalcemia? So I
0: think the mo- one you're going to see most frequently is kidney stones. Uh, s- so you have s- stones, moans, and groans, bones, bones, stones. And groans. So bones, osteoporosis bones. would be one bone fractures. Uh, and then abdominal pain, you can just have kind of like a generalized abdominal pain from hypercalcemia. But yeah, so kidney stones and osteoporosis are two of the more common, uh, symptomatic patients
1: or even depression. Like yeah. you can have a lot of, uh, uh, you know, um, neurologic, uh, I think that's part of this Can't forget the psychiatric, psychiatric overtones. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I think it most commonly presents with, uh, actually just a depression. So
0: I'm gonna check a lot more calciums,
1: <laughs> especially here in the Pacific <laughs> Northwest. Uh, so Kevin, um, so, uh, again, we talked about this a little bit, but some of the l- electrolyte disturbances you find with uh, hyperparathyroidism.
0: Right. Uh, so, you're going to have the hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis due to the PTH effect on the bicarb excretion in the kidney. Um, and, so, and that's also what leads to your chloride to phos ratio elevated at what, woo?
2: Greater than 33. Perfect. And right. then you
0: can also, you will, as we've discussed, uh, PTH is phosphate trashing hormone. So you get hypophosphatemia. Um, and then we beat this into the ground. But if you have renal impairment, it can still be elevated.
1: Okay. So, woo, this is very common, or very commonly, not very common, very commonly tested. So you have a patient who has an elevated parathyroid hormone, elevated calcium. So that's by, dis- by definition hyperparathyroidism, but they have a low urinary
2: calcium. What's the diagnosis? This is benign familial hypercalcemic hypercalcemia.
1: Yeah, and what's the what? Why does that occur? Do you know? So basically, this, their set point is just higher. So they needed a higher level of parathyroid hormone um, in order to activate uh, the receptors in their cell. It has. It's a I, you know. At one point, I used to know the genetic uh, receptor or the uh, component of that, but I don't anymore. I just know that they have a higher set point. But the the um, it's not spilling over into their urine, so it's not really causing any problems. Uh, what so what do you do for that? Nothing. That's so that's very important. Like just because they give you somebody that has elevated parathyroid hormone, just because they give you somebody that has elevated calcium, uh, make sure you're checking that urinary calcium level. So if the calcium isn't spilling over into the urine, they just have a higher set point. It's a benign familial hypocalciuric hypercalcemia, and the treatment is nothing. Uh, okay, Kevin inferior thyroid artery supplies, uh, the parathyroid glands. Um, do they come in? Does it, the blood supply come in medially or does it come in laterally? So the artery will be medial to the nerve, right? So the, the artery supplies the gland from the medial side. Why is that important? Uh, identifying the recurrent laryngeal. No, nope. It's for like when you're doing, we talked about when you're doing your subtotals and you're doing your half gland resection, are you going to resect the medial side of it or the lateral side of it? You're going to resect the lateral side. Of right, that. so you do not disrupting the blood supply. So that, that way you don't end up with a dead half of a gland. Okay, uh, woo. So you're doing a neck, neck exploration and you find three normal glands and you're missing one of the superior glands. Where are you going to look?
2: You check the retroesophageal space and open the carotid sheath.
1: Yep, so that's the superior one. Those are the two most common locations. So the retroesophageal space and open, open carotid. Now how about you're doing a neck exploration. You find three normal glands and you're missing an inferior gland.
0: So this is more problematic as they are more varying locations for this. So you would uh, first start with the uh, ipsilateral side of the mediastinal thymus, and then consider an intra thyroid gland.
1: Yep. And again, this are just, just the most common, um, the most common locations of these. Uh, how about if you find four normal appearing glands um, with an elevated parathyroid
2: hormone? You could consider hypersecreting supernumerary parathyroid gland, uh, which is most commonly located in the thymus. Yep. So you might have more than four
1: glands. Um, so most people have four glands, but you you might have less. You might have more, and and you might find four normal ones, and your abnormal ones still still out there somewhere. Uh, so most common location. Now this is important. Okay, the, the word this is one of those things where the wording of the question is important. So most common location of a missed gland. So you do your surgery, you don't find it.
0: Yeah, uh, parathyroids can be tricky to find. Uh, So the missed gland is probably in its normal anatomic
1: position. Right, Uh, okay. So uh, slight distinction, the most important location of an ectopic gland.
0: The most common location of an ectopic gland would be the thymus.
1: I've definitely missed that on practice questions before. So they'll ask you, you you read the question, most, uh, most common location of a missed gland, you're like, oh, it's in the thymus. No, of a misgland is a normal anatomic position of an ectopic gland is of the thymus. All right, well, that covers it. It's about all the parathyroid I can handle for today. So that's uh, parathyroid hormone. We'll see you, or parathyroid gland. We'll see you next time on Behind the Knife's uh, Absite and Board Review.